Good evening, everyone. You've tuned into a very serious episode of Med Conversations. Some cultural, linguistic, um, historical facts to discuss today. Island of Jersey, located slightly to the south of France, and home to a very ethnolinguistically interesting population. Speaking a dialect of French called. Yes. There you go. And now verse two. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, CKD. Yeah, chronic kidney disease. Very related. Good segue, Beck. Very smooth. Thank you. Well, I have to explain the reason for this is because actually one one hundred thousandth of the population of Jersey, which is a small nation state in Europe, listens to med conversations. And I found them on, on our little stats wow, analysis, and I really thought we wanted to make them feel included. So I give you Gerrier. Impressive numbers there, one in 100,000. Mm, the population is 100,000, but right, there, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was one download from from Jersey. So there you go. Do you have a name? Do you have a... The person's name. Yeah, the no, person's but name. please write us a letter. We'd love to hear who you are. Do you <laughs> live there? Were you traveling there? Hopefully not. Is it a tax haven? Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to start with a case. We are going to actually talk about some medicine today, a little bit on the side. You are sitting in a consult room preparing to see your first patient in the CKD clinic when you hear the muffled sound of accordions ring out from the waiting room, not unlike what you have just heard now. Immediately, given your pre-reading that you've done on med conversations, you identify it as the traditional Gérard folk song, J'ai perdu ma femme. You check the patient list and your suspicions are confirmed. Emmanuel is back. Oh, uh-oh. Here yeah. we go. Emmanuel is a cantankerous, chain-smoking 71-year-old man who emigrated from the small island nation of Jersey 20 years ago. He had been a patient of the CKD clinic for many years before being lost to follow-up a few years ago. When he comes to appointments, he likes to make his presence known by playing traditional Gerrier folk music through a small vintage boombox he balances on his four-wheel frame. Emmanuel has chronic kidney disease as a complication of type 2 diabetes. His renal function had been gradually dwindling over the years, and judging by the volume of the folk music today, so has his hearing. But not his taste in excellent Jerry's music, right, Beck? That's correct. All right, so today, Scott, I was thinking we might have a bit of a chat about CKD in general, so a very broad overview of chronic kidney disease. I'll talk about the epidemiology epidemiology, pathophysiology, common causes of it. We'll delve a little bit more into type 2 diabetes than the other causes. Talk about the symptoms and signs, the complications and the treatment and sort of prognosis of it all. Yeah, so this is probably a bit more of a fun episode, kind of a good general summary, more directed, I guess, probably med students and interns, I guess. But it should be fun and you can hear some really lame jokes from me and Beck. So get ready. Yeah, and I'm sure the renal physicians out there will, will also have something to gain from this episode too. Mm, at some point, all of you will be sitting there on a night shift like, what is this medication or this line that I'm talking about? And it will be sooner than you think. So it's probably a good overall summary, very useful stuff. Okay, so let's start off with definitions where I think everything should start. Chronic kidney disease, is that just about the GFR? No, it's not. Correct answer. Um, yeah, so, so chronic kidney disease, um, you might have learnt in medical school about the different stages. So stage one is when the GFR is still greater than 90, so that's in the, in the normal range. And then it goes down to grade two, with the GFR being 60 to 90. 
and then there's grade three, grade four, grade five, with grade five being less than 15. So it is related to what the glomerular filtration rate is, but you can still have chronic kidney disease with a normal range EGFR. What's another way of determining whether someone's kidneys aren't working? So checking their urine for albuminuria? Yeah, and I think that's one of the main things that I want everyone to get out of this podcast is to look in the urine. So albuminuria is a more sensitive sign than EGFR, and often it's the first sign that someone's kidneys are um, basically up the creek. Yeah, so even if your GFR is over 90, you can have early chronic kidney disease with some albuminuria. Key point. All right, let's go. All right, how common is it, do you know? Um, it's pretty common. I think there was a study which showed that 11% of Australians have a GFR under 60, mm. but only one in 10 of those patients were aware that they have it. Yeah, so it's really common but really underdiagnosed. And if anyone, any of the BPTs out there are listening to this episode, the, the key study here is the OzDiab study. It was a really big study with 11,000 11, people in it. Um, that gives us a bit of this info. And some of the risk factors of chronic kidney disease are ones that would not really be surprising to most of you. Diabetes is the key one there. And then think of other vascular risk factors. So So, your normal ones, so hypertension, um, established cardiovascular disease, if you've got obesity, and smoking. Yeah. And an interesting thing about obesity is having being obese increases your risk of chronic kidney disease, but actually... Once you've got chronic kidney disease, being obese is associated with reduced mortality. So, mm, you know, I think you've got to time your, your donuts, is what I'm saying there. <laughs> Other risk right. factors, family history, being an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, and having a history of acute kidney injury can predispose to chronic kidney disease. So once you've got someone with chronic kidney disease, Beck, so how, like, what are the biggest risk factors for the progression of their disease? So there's lots, but I think for simplicity, we can just say hypertension and proteinuria. So that's why they're a really big focus of our management of patients who have known CKD. So now we're going to talk about the pathophysiology of chronic kidney disease. So I guess the key thing in thinking about this is you can't make new nephrons. So once you're born, you've got all your nephrons. Yeah. And this is a bit of a fun fact that I only learned recently that when you're taking a history from someone with chronic kidney disease, if you wanted to be really over-the-top thorough, and no one is, um, you could find out whether they were born premature because a premature baby is going to be born with fewer nephrons. If you've got fewer to start with, it's actually a risk factor for developing chronic kidney disease. It's not a very significant one, um, but I think it just underlines that point that you can't make new nephrons. So if you don't have many or if you stuff up the ones you have, you're more likely to have worse renal function. Um, and... I think that this is closely related to the pathophysiology of chronic kidney disease in general. So if some of your nephrons stop working, the others compensate by working harder. It's kind of like when I was driving around knowing that one of my headlights was out in my car and I figured that I had a bit of time because I had the other headlight, it wasn't too unsafe, and then the other one died. And then I found out that actually the other globe has to work twice as hard when the electricity does some stuff that I don't understand that someone explained to me when I was 17 and still on my P's. Is that... Hang on. That's a really good bit of knowledge. Is that true for all lights in your house and stuff? So if I, one I light goes out... It may not even feels, be true that for cars. really important. I was a 17-year-old girl and a mechanic. They could have told me anything. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. I don't know about you guys, but I think I'm going to look that up after this episode. I think that may even be the, the, the learning point here. <laughs> That once your lights start going, 
fix them or it'll get worse. Yeah. So I think... And same goes for chronic kidney same disease. Same goes I guess. for kidneys. I think let's let's just drive back onto the kidney <laughs> disease lane again. Um, so, the headlights on 17-year-old girls' cars. That's how you think of nephrons. So, <laughs> so once your nephrons stop working, the others try to work harder. So what the kidney does is it filters things. So the nephrons that are still working have this compensatory hyperfiltration and hypertrophy. They're like strengthening their little kidney muscles. No muscles here, sorry. I shouldn't make jokes <laughs> like that. Um, and, and then that essentially exhausts the rest of the kidney. So chronic kidney disease is, a, by definition, a progressive condition. It gets worse with time. So the main, so the main causes of end-stage kidney disease... So they're pretty straightforward. So the top one is diabetic kidney disease. Yeah, so that's about one in third. One in third. You heard one it here first. Third. Wow, it's very mathematical. So the next one, um, glomerulonephritis, hypertensive vascular disease, and then polycystic kidney disease. And then you've got a big category up to 28% in Australia, which is other. Mm. And there's a lot of different things in there. Multi-system disease, you, you think you're about... Um, connective tissue disorders and your know, vasculitides and and countless other renovascular related things. Um, and like lots of different stuff. Yeah. So the key points here though, diabetes, GN, hypertension and PKD. So going back again to Emmanuel, who while you're explaining all this to the medical student in your rooms, is still in the waiting room playing the third accordion track on his four wheel frame boombox. Um, so he has diabetes and we think, so we know he has diabetes and we know he has CKD. We think that the CKD is secondary to diabetes, but we don't know for sure. The only way to know for sure is to do a biopsy, which we haven't done. The reasons why we think it's diabetic nephropathy are both clinical and radiological and what we can see on the blood tests we've done. So Scott, what, what might lead you to think in Emmanuel's case that he might have diabetic nephropathy? Well, we know Emmanuel pretty well, and he's not one to look after his diabetes very well. He's out there partying and hitting the town with his boombox. So he's at high risk for um, having poorly controlled diabetes and microvascular complications. Um, he's got albuminuria from his previous tests. There's no signs of an acute nephritic or nephrotic syndrome. There's no blood in his urine. Mm, so that relevant negative means that it's less likely to be glomerulonephritis, for example. Mm, yeah. So there's no signs of systemic disease or features of connective tissue disease, negative myeloma screen, negative hepatitis, HIV serology, and the ultrasound shows large but not polycystic kidneys. Mm, so this is an interesting point, and this is a really getting into the weeds a little bit, but in most chronic kidney disease, the kidneys on an ultrasound will be shrunken with a really thin cortex, but really small kidneys. In type 2 diabetes or type 1 diabetes, the kidneys tend to be large in nephropathy. Right. So we've assumed that um, it's probably diabetic, but a few years ago you tried to do a renal biopsy on Emmanuel to prove that it was diabetic. Yeah, so, so you got the needle, he's in the corner, he's in your consulting room, you're kind of towering over the little man. He's holding his accordion out to help himself. <laughs> and you're saying, this is clinically important to get this biopsy. And... No, actually what you did is you got your intern who's never seen one done before to try and fill out a consent form. <laughs> no, so the way, the way a renal biopsy works is, is actually, it's actually quite a minor procedure. It's often done just on the ward. You get the patient to lie prone, so they're sort of lying on their bellies, use a little bit of local anesthetic and insert a biopsy needle into their, I guess, into their flank so then you get out your microscope 
And in diabetic nephropathy, you can see thickening of the glomerular basement membrane, increased mesangial volume, and nodular glomerular sclerosis, where damage to the glomerular basement membrane allows proteins in the blood to leak through, and you get these nodules, which are called Kimmelstahl-Wilson nodules. Mm. Yeah. So you tried to do this um, for Emmanuel, and as documented in the notes that you're looking through now, Emmanuel declined. Declined is my favourite euphemism in medicine. In this case, decline meant Emmanuel threatened to pull out the nephrologist's fingernails. Mm, traditional method of duelling in Jersey. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> so, Scott, what have you learnt so far? So, just This is a med conversation summary. Yeah, so this is because you need to hear something eight times, so we try and say it like 11. So, CKD is really common but underdiagnosed. Um, sometimes albuminuria can herald the onset of reduced GFR. And you can get CKD stage one when you still have a normal GFR. So it's a really sensitive test. The four in Australia, the four most common causes of chronic kidney disease are diabetes, glomerular nephritis, hypertension, and polycystic kidney disease. Um, you keep going back. All right. Renal biopsies can be done on the ward and they're needed if you want to confirm what the specific diagnosis is of CKD. In diabetic nephropathy, you get large kidneys on imaging, which is different to most other kinds of CKD, and biopsy shows thickening of the glomerular basement membrane, increased mesangial volume, and nodular glomerular sclerosis, which is called Kimmel-style Wilson nodules. Yeah, but just to reinforce that, often if it's a really clear diagnosis of um, diabetic nephropathy, you won't actually do the biopsy. Hmm. But a lot of nephrologists say that we need to be doing more than we are. So here we go. Okay. (laughs) The seventh track. As a seventh track... A traditional accordion folk music from Jersey rings out. You continue to rummage through the notes from the last few clinic visits. So it looks like he's had mostly just social check-ins. He hasn't had any symptoms that have been documented in any of these letters. And every visit he's had a bunch of tests when he did bother to actually get them done. So he's had an FBE, UEC, a CMP. He's had his urine sent off with microscopy and a spot albumin creatinine ratio and protein creatinine ratio. The last time he came to clinic was about four years ago, at which stage he, he had stage 3 CKD and an EGFR of 35 with moderate albuminuria on his ACR. But aside from that, all of his, his other tests were normal. So the common test you'd use to monitor chronic kidney disease, so why do you monitor hemoglobin? What are you looking for? So you're looking for anemia, and most patients with chronic kidney disease will have anemia for one of or both of two reasons. Anemia of chronic disease... And secondly, because they have poorly functioning kidneys and one of the roles of the normal kidney is to produce EPO, which is erythropoietin. And if we look at anemia of chronic disease first, the way that works is is really interesting. So anemia of chronic disease, is that just for kidney failure? No. No, exactly. So the way that it works is in those chronic inflammatory states, there's an increase in something called hepcidin. Hepcidin is responsible for interacting with something called ferroportin. So ferroportin is, actually you probably know this, the, yeah, the so linguistic ferro, basis com- of this. Coming from iron and portin sounding a bit like port or door. Yeah, so it's an iron door. And the iron door is in the in your gut and it allows the iron that you eat to get through absorbed into your bloodstream. So hepcidin essentially locks the iron door. So it, it closes the ferroportin. And it stops you from being able to absorb the iron. So that's how anemia of chronic disease works. The other thing I mentioned was the low EPO. 
Um, and that's, that's renal anemia. And that's why we actually can give people EPO or darbopoietin, which is a synthetic version of it, to boost up the production of the um, baby red blood cells. Yeah, so it's an injection you'll see on the wards. And the, like the common brand name in Australia is Aronesp. Mm, exactly, that's the one. What other tests do we do? So um, UECs. Yes. So obviously you're looking at the creatinine, the urea, and the GFR for looking at progression of disease and whether there's kind of an acute, really quickly changing pattern or kind of a slow, gradual progression, more consistent with the diabetic nephropathy. And you're also checking for um, acute derangements like hyperkalemia. Mm. So hyperkalemia is often not an acute thing that suddenly happens, but um, the one of the problems as kidney failure progresses, particularly when it becomes oliguric, that is when people aren't making very much urine, is that their potassium levels start to build up. Another thing that you look for on the UEC is the bicarbonate. So in chronic kidney disease, there's often a state of metabolic acidosis. Okay, so you're also looking for a high PTH, and that's something that you want to treat in chronic kidney disease. Mm. So you're aiming for a target of two to three times the upper limit of normal in patients who've got end-stage renal failure. And if you don't manage that, you can put patients at risk of having something called adynamic bone disease. I don't think we need to go too much into the detail of this, but um, the PTH axis, which is looking at the calcium and the phosphate and vitamin D, is all pretty out of whack in CKD. Um, so you've got to manage the, the calcium levels and, and high phosphate, which is often a really big struggle to manage. Yeah, so parathyroid hormone goes really high, you try and keep it down. So the next one, vitamin D. Yeah, so vitamin D levels. Vitamin D is activated in the kidney. So the kidney produces um, alpha-1 hydroxylase, which activates your cholecalciferol in the last step um, to calcitriol, which is also known as 1,25-dihydroxyvitamin D. So if your kidneys aren't working very well and they're not doing that job very well, you end up with a vitamin D deficiency, with an activated vitamin D deficiency. Cool. And the last one, fasting lipids. Why do you do that? Yeah, so this is something that you do as part of a general philosophy of trying to reduce the cardiovascular risk in patients who have chronic kidney disease. So, so well, I'm sorry, go. I think we're going to say the same thing, but I guess all of those investigations all link into the complications of chronic kidney disease. So most of those tests you're doing are to find out whether patients have developed these complications. So the common complications being fluid overload, electrolyte imbalances, anemias, as we talked about, renal bone disease, metabolic acidosis, usually towards the end. Um, they can frequently get infections um, due to multiple kind of etiologies. And um, malnutrition is another big problem. Mm, peripheral neuro- protein malnutrition. Mm, yeah. Um, peripheral neuropathy, and at the end, encephalopathy. Mm. But I think the most common and most important complication is cardiovascular. And actually the most common cause of death in patients with chronic kidney disease is, is cardiovascular disease. Arrhythmia is the, the number one there, I think, and ischemic is a close second. Yeah, so if you're going to take away a couple of things from this, one of them would be that. Why do they actually die? Usually a problem with the heart. Mm. So here we go to reinforce it again from another angle. So principles of management of CKD. So number one, reduce cardiovascular risk. So smoking, nutrition, alcohol, physical activity, and antihypertensives. Because as we said before, like the cardiovascular disease is what actually kills them. Mm. 
So you want to control or treat the underlying cause. So in this case, you want to control his sugars, his diabetes, his HbA1c. You want to reduce his proteinuria. You can do that partly through ACE inhibitors or ARBs. Yeah, and I think this is a really important point. So again, if you're going to take something out of today's podcast, that proteinuria can actually be reversed. So it's really important that patients who have, particularly diabetic patients who have proteinuria, are diagnosed as having proteinuria. So you actually have to test the urine to know about it, and then you start them all on an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker if there's no contraindication. It can make a huge difference. Yeah, big, big improvements in mortality. So avoid nephrotoxins. So you don't want them taking any ibuprofen over the counter. Um, you don't want too much contrast, other nephrotoxic medications, and also be careful of renally excreted medications that might build up. Mm. Um, electrolyte derangements and other complications. Uh, I think we've sort of mentioned this in brief, but hyperphosphatemia might require some phosphate binding medications, hyperkalemia, can need a treatment like risonium, so a potassium binder, um, and making sure that you've got the calcium, phosphate, parathyroid hormone axis um, hormones all, all sort of controlled as much as you can to prevent renal bone disease. And then managing anemia with something like um, synthetic EPO or ARINESP. This is all the management of CKD before you get to end-stage kidney failure. But all this time, you've got to have in the back of your mind that these patients might be progressing to needing dialysis or transplant or both. And you need to start making plans for that pretty early. So now you think, (laughs) we've been rattling through notes for about, you know, 25 minutes. Is Emmanuel even still there or are we just going to let him go with his beautiful music? You then (laughs) watch him slowly walk in. He looks... He's very skinny, he's got his legs, he's, very, he's quite short of breath, he's hiccuping, kind of producing more sound than his accordion. And he, t- <laughs> he doesn't have an accordion, pretty, he's got a boombox, come on. Yeah, yeah you know, owners look like they're pets. People, <laughs> musicians can look like they're instruments, or this one. So he tells you that recently he's been spending a lot of time in bed, he's had nausea, he's had vomiting, he hasn't been eating enough, he's been starting to produce less urine. And he's also had shortness of breath when he lies down and when he does exercise. Mm. So he's pretty sick. You take him into the clinic room and examine him. His blood pressure is 190 on 100, so he's quite hypertensive, but all of his other obs are normal, and his GSS is, GCS is 15. Um, you have a look at the full physician's Talion mm. O'Connor exam. Start you notice, with the hands. You notice a Young few physician. little... Yes, sorry, nails. You see leukonychia and half-and-half half nails. He has some pallor in his palmar creases, suggestive of anemia. You check for asterisk... Asterisk... I hate this word so much. You check for a flap. He doesn't have one. And he's also got normal sensation in his periphery, so no peripheral neuropathy. Moving up, you check his arms. He doesn't have a fistula. And you move on to his face, where you kind of, you know, wonderful role model physician, get him to breathe out and breathe in his breath, which is horrible in reality, but he doesn't have any uremic fetal. So we just didn't brush your teeth. At we time. had we had the funniest bedside shoot a few weeks ago, where our um, very close to retirement um, renal physician got us all to gather around a patient who was sitting in a chair ready to go home after he'd finished his dialysis. And this bedside shoot went for about an hour while the patient kept on literally standing up and trying to leave. But it culminated in the physician leaning over and gently wafting his breath towards the patient's breath towards this, this old physician's face. And he goes... 
Oh, yes, everybody lean in. You've got to smell this. And then the patient got up and left. So I think that um, it requires a bit of sensitivity to be able to listen to somebody's breath. Listen to their breath, sorry. You know, to smell their breath without them feeling extremely yeah, you uncomfortable. You feel it on your earlobes. Smell it with your ears. <laughs> All right, I think a, a plane just went past. Did I think that's why I said listen to the breath. I was listening to the plane. All right, so we're doing this examination. We got to the face. Let's look at the neck. JVP. He's obviously fluid overloaded. His JVP is right up to his earlobe. You listen to his chest. He's got bivasal creps. You listen to his heart. And the thing that you're really hoping you don't hear is a pericardial rub. Because that might be evidence of pericarditis, which is an indication for dialysis quick smart. He doesn't have a pericardial rub, so you're reassured. Then you head south to the abdomen, where he doesn't have ascites. You can't feel his kidneys when you blot them. And you can see some evidence of insulin injections. Mm, it's soft. And it's soft. Mm. Non-tender. No peritonitis. So you check his blood test. He's got a GFR of 9 and a potassium of 6.9. Does this man need a hospital? Yes. Dr. Fosk. He does. Dr. Ab. <laughs> All right. So what do you do now? So I organize his admission. That's probably the first thing I'm going to do. Check an ECG. So with a potassium that high, it's important just to make sure that um, at this stage, we don't know if it's acute or chronic. We want to make sure there's no changes there. So what are the changes on an ECG in hyperkalemia? So the most sensitive sign you'll see first is peaked T waves, but there's kind of a progressive development as you get a more profound hyperkalemia, and that progresses to flatten P waves, a long PR, and you can develop a variety of arrhythmias. Mm. So in his case, fortunately, the ECG is normal, apart from some evidence of left ventricular hypertrophy, which is in keeping with hypertension. You do a VBG, another really quick bedside test. Um, VBGs only take a few seconds to come back. It's a venous blood gas, and that shows a pH of 7.38. So you're reassured he's not really all that acidotic. What do you do next? What's your priority next? So you want to take a bit of a history and go through the notes and find out if this is an acute or chronic renal failure. So you'll take a history from him, you'll call a GP, chase the collateral, try and see kind of the pattern of the GFR progression over time. So it's all looking a lot like CKD. There's been no acute deterioration recently. And you can see that the renal function has actually been dropping very slowly over the last four years when he hasn't been coming to see you in clinic. So what you do now is you manage him supportively. You give him some risonium, monitor his potassium and his ECG, and you try to get some of that extra fluid off with diuresis. Here, because the renal function is so bad, you want to give huge doses of furosemide. So we're talking 250 milligrams twice a day. Mm, IV. Just IV. Of those kidneys. Yeah. And, and you want to monitor their fluid status, which involves a close fluid balance chart and daily weighs and you, the old clinical examination. You might also consider sodibic, so sodium bicarbonate, in a patient who's got a really bad metabolic acidosis. In this patient, that's not much of a concern. So does this patient need dialysis now? Yeah, um, and ideally, dialysis is something that we plan for years in advance rather than just being reactionary. But often the way it works is that we're just reactionary. So in terms of when we would do dialysis, what the general indications are, it does seem like it's a bit more art than science, but there are some absolute indications. Do you know what they are? So if the patient has uremic pericarditis or pleuritis or uremic encephalopathy, 
Yeah, so they're the no, no questions asked, you do it straight away. Then other things to think about are patients who do have end-stage renal failure according to their EGFR. So EGFR, I would say 5 to 15 with signs and symptoms. You start thinking about dialysis. Um, and some of the common signs and symptoms would be declining nutritional status, persistent or difficult to treat volume overload, fatigue, malaise, and refractory, that's a key word here, acidosis, hyperkalemia, and hyperphosphatemia. Yeah, so when you can't manage their complications through more conservative treatment, that's mm. when you move to it, basically. Yeah. And transplant is also something that we think about in some patients. Um, and again, that's something that we need to anticipate. You can't just suddenly do an acute transplant. <laughs> yeah, just like acquisition someone. <laughs> <laughs> Depends where you live. Play a short straw game. I don't know yeah. what they're like in Jersey. <laughs> All right, so dialysis. I think that this is uh, probably something that's useful for medical students or interns, residents who are about to go on to a renal rotation to know what the different kinds of dialysis are. So we're going to be just very keywordy here. Peritoneal dialysis, keyword, what do you think of? Uh, so the Tinkoff catheter. Yes. So peritoneal dialysis is where you're using the body's own membranes instead of um, an external kind of thing. And basically this is just a catheter that goes into the peritoneal space and um, and instead of the kidneys doing the job of filtering the blood, it's essentially the peritoneal membrane that does the job. It can be continuous ambulatory, so that dialysis is happening sort of all the time, or it can be nocturnal. So you're putting fluid that sits in the peritoneal cavity, and that's absorbing some of the toxins and things that the kidney normally does, and then you take that fluid out. So the patients usually do it, often do it overnight. Yeah, and a patient to be on peritoneal dialysis needs to be very on the ball. So this is not for your patients with early dementia or people who aren't compliant at all. They've got to be able to manage these machines pretty independently. And they also have to have relatively normal abdominal pathology. So this isn't for someone who's had seven, you know, colectomies or anything like that. Then there's hemodialysis. And there's a few different ways you can have hemodialysis. But basically it's a similar principle where your, the blood is, is taken out of the body, filtered through external membranes, and then returned back to the body with its toxins and things taken out. You can do hemodialysis at home, but I've very rarely seen patients who have home hemodialysis. Most actually go into a dialysis centre a few days a week um, and have it done there. And it takes, usually every session is about four hours, so it's a big hit to their lifestyle. So for hemodialysis, using an external machine... There's three main methods of vascular access. So these are words you'll hear on the renal ward. So a vascath is a temporary um, central line. It's usually used for up to seven to ten days, inserted in a major vein. And um, it's got quite a high infection risk, um, often staph aureus. Mm, please refer to our staph aureus bacteremia podcast. Mm, good podcast. And so the next word you'll hear is permacath, and that's... Also a central line, but it's tunneled under the skin, which reduces the chance of an infection in the line. And some, in some patients who aren't for too aggressive management, that can sometimes be a long-term solution mm. or an end game. But often it's used as a bridge while they're waiting for their fistula. Or a transplant. Yep. So what is a fistula? So a fistula is a connection between an artery and a vein. And mm. they're pretty cool. I'm sure you probably most of you guys would have seen them by now. But because of the pressure differential between the artery and the vein, you get this kind of very large, buzzy um, vessel, which has very high flow. And so it's really useful 
for turning over blood really quickly in hemofiltration mm. in dialysis. So to create a fistula involves surgery. It's not a huge operation, but the fistula can't be used straight away. It needs to mature. So it's not something that you do for a patient who comes into hospital and needs dialysis today. And the next thing you'll be thinking about long-term is a renal transplant, which improves survival but has a lot of complications. You've got to give these patients immunosuppression and often it's very commonly done in pediatric patients. But in Australia, for example, about a quarter of patients are on waiting lists for transplants and they can be really long lists. But without transplants, in general, thinking about kind of end-stage renal failure, there's about a 50% five-year mortality in 64 to 75-year-olds. And mm. It's obviously a bit higher or lower depending on your age. Yeah, and I think it's, it's a very personal decision about um, the p- patient's decision and what their wishes are, whether you think that you would want to list them for a transplant. Mm. So in Emmanuel's case, that wasn't an option. He's come in, he's needing renal replacement therapy right away. So we can't do a transplant at this stage and we'll need to start dialysis. So we need to refer him to two groups of people. We need to refer Emmanuel to the renal surgeons and also the elders of the Jersey Island community to help him with the traditional batch and ringing ceremony, which now we can all enjoy. Beautiful, into my body healing. Very so this is, here. this is a traditional midsummer ritual to scare away the evil spirits and uh, we hope the potassium as well. Yeah, it helps with your phosphate. Alright, so I'll turn that off. <laughs> so Emmanuel had a permacath put in. He started dialysis the same day. His fluid status improved. His potassium normalised. He felt much better. He started eating again. He got referred to his local dialysis centre for dialysis three times a week. And he's going to continue to go to dialysis clinic to manage the complications of end-stage renal failure, which we have talked about quite extensively. So sorry if this podcast has been a little bit bit rambly, but we're almost at the end. We're going to give you a little bit of a treat before we finish. We're going to go through some take-home points accompanied by the wonderful elders of the Jersey community in their take on... J'ai perdu ma femme. Here we go. So, most important take-home points. So, most common causes of chronic renal failure. Type 2 diabetes and glomerulonephritis. The most important complication. Cardiovascular disease is the biggest killer. And what are your main things that you treat? So, supportive, electrolytes, anemia management, bone and the parathyroid axis, fluid restriction, diuretics, management of those cardiovascular risk factors, and then the more definitive things of dialysis and transplant. Some other really important key points in primary care are make sure you always do a urine to check for proteinuria because it's a really more sensitive test than the creatinine. And get people on ACE inhibitors early to protect their kidneys. Mm. Any, any other sort of pieces of wisdom you've got for listeners? Well, I think you never know what's going to happen. So given that you might need someone's kidney, sometimes it's a good idea to kind of come up in advance with a bit of a kidney plan. Hmm. Maybe get a bit of a kidney buddy. Do you have a, have a kidney buddy, Beck? Would you like to shout out to anyone right now? Yeah, I just, just wanted to say thank you for Hayley um, for offering up her kidney. I really appreciate it. There's nothing wrong with mine. There's nothing wrong with hers, but we like to plan for the future. So there you go. Get yourself a kidney buddy. <laughs> All right, thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.